0: It is a blessing indeed to be with you, to worship together, to come around God's word together, It really is a continuation of worship, as we'll be looking at this passage in a moment. Now, likely I've shared this story with you before, but it really fit for this morning as we introduce our subject. There was a, um, a drug enforcement agent who stopped at a ranch in Texas to speak to an old rancher. He told the rancher in no uncertain terms... I need to inspect your ranch for illegally grown drugs. The rancher replied, okay, but see that field over there? The rancher pointed, don't go into that field. You see, and before he could even finish the sentence, the drug enforcement agent verbally exploded. He said, listen, mister, I have the authority of the federal government with me. Reaching in his pocket, the officer then removed his badge and proudly displayed it to the rancher. He said, see this badge? See this badge? This badge means I can go wherever I want, on any land. Yes, sir, the rancher replied. I'm just saying, don't go over into that field over there, you see. And again, the agent interrupted him, pulled out his badge, said, see this badge? Do you understand who I am? Do you understand, old man? The rancher kindly nodded, he apologized, and he went about his chores. Moments later the rancher heard some loud screams and he looked up and he saw the federal agent running for his life being chased by the rancher's big Santa Catrudis bull. With every step the bull was gaining ground on the officer and the officer was terrified, fearing for his life. The old rancher knowing the agent went into that field threw down his tools, he ran as fast as he could to the fence, and he yelled at the top of his lungs to the officer, your badge, show the bull your badge. (laughs) Well, for Mr. Hutshot agent, he learned the hard way about throwing your weight of authority around. See, being consumed with our own sense of power and status can be Fatal. A preoccupation with our own self-importance can blur our judgment. This morning we're introduced to one who did not draw attention to himself, who did not throw his weight around, who did not use his power for personal gain, who did not engage in tactics of those in authority and power. So if you're not there, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42 as we continue in our sermon series and our study in the book of Isaiah and answering the question, why are we here? Why are we here? And as we'll see in this chapter this morning, strong does not mean reckless. Strong is not the same as being harsh. We're introduced to the servant. So my first heading then is see the servant. See the servant. All right now as we come to chapter 42 we really need to see it in context and we need to uh, look and see what came before it. In chapter 41, chapter 41 God addresses the problem of idolatry and he does so by setting up this court scene uh, to prove the uselessness of idols. And he calls the idols in as witnesses in his little court scene that that God has set up. Now, don't miss the humor and tone of sarcasm here. Chapter 41 now, look at verse 21. 21 of chapter 41. He says, present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Now, verse 22. Bring in your idols to tell us what's going to happen. Tell us what the former things were, so we may consider them and know their final outcome. Declare to us the things to come. Tell us, tell us now what the future holds, so we may know you are God's. God is just poking fun at idolatry and and their inability to predict the future. And he calls on the uh, idols to, to give some evidence that they've ever done this. Now, I can't help but think of um, the Psychic Friends Network. I don't know if they're still around. But a few years ago, they were. And they were bringing in millions and millions of dollars as the industry leader for daily horoscopes and psychic advice. Their catch line was this. We all want to know what our future holds. Now, ironically, the first page of its investor presentation says this. Undue reliance should not be placed on the forward-looking statements because Psychic Friends Network can give no assurance that they will prove to be correct." What a disclaimer! You gotta go, well, no kidding. Now, a similar warning really can be attached to to idols and to many things we trust to add to our own well-being. They won't really be able to deliver what they promise. You see, anytime, anytime, of course, you're like, what's idolatry? I don't set any of these these things up in my lawn. Well, anytime we make something other than God the ultimate object of our affection, we're very close to idolatry. If not, we are idol worshipers. See, anytime, anything that we rely on for help or for guidance in place of total reliance on the true living God is an idol. And God calls his people, and he calls us to take a good look at our misplaced affections and trust. And so he says, in now verse 29, still in chapter 41, verse 29 says, Behold, or see, they are false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Then we come to verse 1, chapter 42. Now, remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original scriptures. They're provided for our benefit. And so, when verse 1 comes out of the gates and uses that word, behold, or see, and Ivy misses it a little bit, and it says, here is. But the first word there is behold, see. It ties it back to verse 29 of chapter 41, which begins with the very same word. The previous behold was calling attention to the worthlessness of our misplaced affections. Behold your worthless idols. They says, behold my servants. Chapter 42, verse one. Now who's the servant? All right, this is where it gets a little tricky to interpret and as an aside, but a very important aside. I'll try not to give you more information than you care to know here, but there are four passages in Isaiah that key in on this topic of the servant. This chapter here, chapter 42, and then chapter 49 that we're only going to touch on, and then chapter 50 we'll look at next week, and then chapter 53 we'll see in a couple weeks. Now there are times when servant in those passages refers to the nation of Israel as a whole. There are times when it's obvious it can't be the nation of Israel as a whole, and, it is a, and it's an individual. And so back and forth, Isaiah goes. It's the whole nation, servant. It's an individual, servant. And sometimes even in the same passage, he doesn't. Now the one exception to this, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, is chapter 53. The suffering servant described to us in chapter 53 refers exclusively to an individual. The identity of the servant in chapter 53, unmistakably, is Jesus Messiah. All right, so what's the identity here of the servant as we're looking at it this morning in chapter 42? Who's the servant presented to us here? Well, it's the ideal servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. For God says in verse one, let's continue with that now, chapter 42, verse one, behold, Here is my servant, in whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit upon him. Now, the New Testament, the New Testament records for us that when Jesus shows up at the river where John the Baptist is baptizing people, remember that, and you can see it, all the Gospels, but Matthew 3.17, Jesus goes down into the water And then as he comes out of the water, what happens? Heaven is opened. The Spirit descends on him. And a voice says, this is my beloved Son in whom I delight. It's quoting Isaiah 42 verse 1. So God is saying that this servant is Jesus. Now, what's so incredibly amazing about this is that this servant is also king. Even when, when out from the heavens, uh, God the Father said, "My beloved son." That reference really to the Psalms, and that He's shown Messiah as the king. And so, what we have here—it's absolutely amazing—is that we have a servant who's also a king who will bring justice. We'll see that in a moment. Servant king. Seems like a contradiction. A majestic king who has all the power is a servant. We almost need to linger there. The one who holds the stars in place, the one who is ruler of all, the one who is king of kings and lord of lords is a servant. That really ought to fill us with, 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 with wonder and worship. See the servant. Living hope. Behold the servant. All right, secondly, I want to look at the need for a servant. I want to look at the need for a servant. Now, one of the expectations of a king is that uh, he would uphold justice. Often they didn't, but that was, they were supposed to do that. And three times in these first four verses, we see that word, Justice. And so the servant king is intent on bringing justice to all. End of verse 1 of this servant, it says, and he will bring justice to the nations. End of verse 3, And faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. Look at me, middle of verse 4, till he establishes justice on earth. He won't falter, he won't discuss, until he establishes justice on earth. Why do we need justice? Well, the thought here, by the way, of justice... It's not just punishing evildoers. It's, it's more than, uh, the word really is more than judicial equity. The thought here is, is the idea of, of putting things right. Uh, since Genesis 3, and the entrance of sin into the world. Things have been all out of whack. But prior to that moment, humans were in perfect harmony with God. They were in perfect harmony with the environment. They were in perfect harmony with each other. Then sin happened. What was right was now all wrong. And so Jesus' coming was for the purpose of getting us humans right with God and right with each other. His giving of his life made all that possible. And so when he comes again, the rest of the work of justice will be made complete. He will put every relationship that is wrong right. He will heal everything that is wrong with this world. How about you? I'm kind of looking forward to that. It's going to be a time when there'll be writing of all wrongs when truth prevails and all that we hope for is finally realized. I long for the day where there will be complete societal order and harmony. We'll all play nice. (laughs) We'll all get along. We can live in an environment of, of truth under the lordship of the one and only unique God. Yes, Jesus is the coming king who will establish complete justice throughout the earth. But what is confusing is that this king does not act like a typical king. This king doesn't look like a king. This king is a servant. Now, as as Tim Keller aptly put it, he says the servant gets the results of a king, but doesn't use the methods of a king. He gets the results of a king, but doesn't use the methods of the king, meaning through power. He will, without all the pompous power, change the world. And so the beginning of verse 2, we get a glimpse into his approach to getting results. Notice what it says here. He will not shout. He will not cry out. He will not raise his voice in the streets. He's making a contrast there between the kings and rulers of of his day and of all time, really, and of this servant. There are leaders There are leaders who can get things done and get results, but do so by trampling over people. Likely, if you have to shout, I am the leader around here, you probably aren't. (laughs) Some leaders get results through intimidation. During his years as premier of the Soviet Union, Nikita Uh, Khrushchev denounced many of the policies and atrocities of his predecessor, Joseph Stalin. Once, even at a public meeting, he was denouncing Joseph Stalin, criticizing Joseph Stalin, and, and, and Khrushchev was then interrupted by a shout from a heckler in the audience. And he said, this heckler said, you were one of Stalin's colleagues, why didn't you stop him? Why didn't you stop him? Khrushchev stopped And he roared, who said that? Agonizing silence followed as nobody in the room dared to move a muscle. Again he shouted, who said that? Silence. Khrushchev then quietly replied, see, now you know why. Power, intimidation, manipulation, screaming, Bullying, imposing your own demands, forcing others to comply. You use of you, you can do all of that. That is not God's way. That is not God's way. A servant of the Lord is not some loudmouthed, showy, self-promoting leader. He's not your stereotypical television evangelist or politician who constantly draws his attention to himself. No, this servant didn't come and stand on some soapbox screaming for change you wouldn't find large pictures of Jesus and the vestibule of his local synagogue Jesus came in quiet humility he didn't grab the throne he picked up a towel he didn't come to search and destroy to seek and to save why do we need this servant Well, look at verse 3. It speaks to that. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now, the word translated bruised there in the NIV comes up a little short. It's really an unfortunate translation. Because we might say, it's just a bruise. No biggie. No, no, no. The meaning of bruised is much stronger than that in the original. It means a deep contusion that has injured or destroyed a vital organ. It could very well be a death blow. And so a bruised reed is a picture of that which is weak, fragile, easily swayed by the wind. It's bent over. It's cracked. It's about to break. A bruised reed. Some of you today might feel like a bruised reed. Bruised by, by someone's betrayal, Wounded by someone's unkind words. Badly beaten by your own personal failure. Disheartened by the way life seems to be going. And you came into this room today just feeling a little beat up. Just when you you feel you're about to break, just one more blow will do it. Jesus comes along and he wants to hold you up. He wants to keep you from breaking. Think of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus. When it came upon uh, someone broken, maybe they're broken because of their sin or they're bent over by the pressures of life, Jesus didn't come along and finish the job. He, he ministered them. He did not break the bruised with, I told you so. He did not break the hurting by shouting, can't you just get your act together? He did not, he did not kick the one already down. No, Jesus chose the ones others had no use for. He lifted up those bruised and and hurting. He spoke hope into the one who was fragile, ready to break. The servant picks up bruised reeds. Listen, he doesn't oppress the oppressed. He doesn't break the broken. He doesn't crush the crushed. And if Christ is so merciful not to break me, then I should not break myself. You know, I just keep beating up on myself. That's not coming from the voice of truth. That's not coming from the Lord. He didn't want he doesn't want me to break like that. Well, perhaps a smoldering wick describes you lately. You feel like that little red dot on the wick after you blow out the birthday candle. At one time your your flame was burning brightly, but now it's it's hardly a spark. You feel displaced or you're, you're questioning your usefulness and your failures, you play over and over and over in your mind. Jesus comes along, he cups his hand and he blows gently whew, until it burns brightly again. See, it ain't over because you say it's over. Because someone else told you you were done, or you were finished, you're useless. They're not the final word on that. A smoldering wick, he says, he will not snuff out. End of verse 3. Aren't you interested in the one who has interest in bruised reeds and smoldering wicks? Will you come to this servant? Maybe you came into this room this morning and your idea of Jesus was totally different than this. Will you come to the servant? Can you, can, can you trust him with your hurt and your pain? Can you trust him with the events in your life that just don't make sense? Yeah, there were those who came into this room today, bruised, feeling beat up, ready to break. What is it you need? Couldn't help myself but think of the prophet Elijah. Elijah in the, in the Old Testament. Do you remember the time he was like totally bummed out? I mean, he was depressed, he had had it with ministry. He was tired of being hunted by this evil woman, Jezebel. I mean, he sunk really, really low. He collapsed under a tree and he said, I have had enough, Lord. Ever, ever felt that way? I have. He goes on in Elijah, and he says, Take my life, I am no better than my ancestors. Now, Elijah wasn't going to take his own life, but he was pleading, God, take me, I'm done. It says he, then lay down under the tree and he fell asleep. What happened next? What did God do? Oh, he came along and he said, Elijah, stop it, will you? Stop it, just stop it. No, that's not what happened. He came over and he hit him by, with a two by four. No. What did God do? Remember, He sent an angel to cook him dinner. Let's give this guy meat and potatoes. He cared for his physical needs. He fed him, not just once, but two times. And I ask, what would I have done there? Someone comes to me and says, I'm done. I've had enough. I throw him a little scripture. I say, hey, there's a pill for that, you know. Not against that, but you understand my point. Oh you need to repent. Pfft. You're a mess. How do we deal with people at their weakest point? And frankly, we, I say we, convicted about this. We don't always do a good job here. The Christian community is known to kind of go into fix-it mode or give that pat answer, whereas we're often labeled Christians are the only army who shoot their wounded. How do we respond to the bruised? To those beat up by the storms of life, to those who are crushed by the weight of their own sin, do we take the time to hear someone's story or do we just jump to some premature conclusions? Reminded of this, there was this classy, this classy theater that had both floor seating and balcony seating. And Usher was walking down the aisle of the floor seating when he noticed this man who lay sprawled out across three entire seats. The usher whispered to the man, sorry, sir, but you're only allowed one seat. The man groaned, but didn't budge. Impatiently, the usher said, listen, if you don't get up from there, I'm going to have to go call the manager. The man just groaned, didn't move, which infuriated the usher. The usher marched briskly back up the aisle to go get the manager. In a few moments, both the usher and the manager returned. They told this man sprawled along, uh, uh, on three seats, you can't take all three seats, you got to move. Well, they were unsuccessful. They involved the police. The police officer looked at the man laying across the three seats and he asked, all right, buddy, what's your name? Sam, the man moaned. And where are you from, Sam? The police officer asked. And with pain in his voice, Sam replied, The balcony. <laughs> Do you see what happened? Sam fell off the balcony, he didn't need a lecture. He didn't, he didn't need a Will you move? He didn't need someone in authority to boss him around. His need was for someone to care for him, minister to him, serve him. The those around us as if they're sprawled out on the seats, they're wounded, they're hurt. What do they need? Someone to serve them. They need a servant. They need a servant. All right, let's look at the servant's task passed on. So we continue this thought. Verse four tells us he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. Now, interesting, the word falter. Is a play on words. And it's the same idea of being snuffed out in verse 3. And the word discouraged is the very same word as bruised. What this is saying is the servant will experience the very same things we experience. But it will not stop him from carrying out what he came to do. He knew why he was there. Now, you need to think gospel right here. Yes, Old Testament. You need to think gospel right here. So in Isaiah 53, that we're going to be looking at in a couple of weeks, it speaks of the servant who was pierced for our transgressions and bruised or crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds, we're healed. You see, Israel's greatest need, Judah, when they're in this captivity for 70 years, their greatest need wasn't just being delivered from their captivity in Babylon. It was a problem of their, of their relationship with God. Their estrangement from him. See, God's servant came to solve the problem of sin. We see it, verse 5. Verse 5. This is what the God the Lord says, He who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people speaking of Israel, and a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. See, God's servant, Jesus Christ, came to bring salvation, to be the light in Judah's darkness, darkness primarily because of idolatry. But this task here expands beyond Israel, doesn't it? A light to the Gentiles. We really see that in the second servant passage in chapter 49. You can go there if you want. It will be on on the screen. 49 verse 6. It says, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant. Got to be speaking of the individual here. To be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob, Israel, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. Get this. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, little context here. Israel as God's servant was to be the light for the Gentiles. That's why they existed. And at the core of the nation Israel's failure was their forgetfulness of that issue. They were chosen to be the light of the surrounding nations, but they lost their way. They started to take on the ways of the culture. They were steeped in gross idolatry. It's why I read those verses earlier. They lost their distinctiveness as people of God. Have we? G.K. Chesterton put it this way, we do not want, as the newspapers say, a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. We as followers of Jesus Christ who have been changed by the gospel, we're tasked to spread the message of hope to those around us. The task of reaching the world has been passed on to us. Living hope, this is why we're here. It's all about the gospel expanding to all people through us. We are the church of the servant. We're called to move the world. What's the best way to move the world? Scream and yell? Be as loud and as obnoxious as we can? Ah, it's just the way I am. If you profess to be following this Jesus that we were reading about, who at the same time was king and servant? Shouldn't these virtues we have looked at this morning be seen in us? Are we not the church of the servants? Oh, he did not shout or cry out in the streets. He did not break the bruise to snuff out the flickering, flickering flame. I mean, why were the distraught so attracted to him? Why were the, the bruised and the outcasts and the weak and the losers of society drawn to him? Because he was a servant. That is who we are. Blind songwriter Ken Medema, years ago, he wrote a song that put his finger on a very tender nerve. He's speaking of of the church there, and he wrote these words in the song, if this is not the place, if this is not the place where tears are understood, then where shall I go to cry? If this is not a place where my spirit can take wings, where shall I go to fly? I don't need another place For always wearing smiles, even when it's not the way I feel. I don't need another place to mouth the same old platitudes. Everybody knows it's not real. So if this is not a place where my questions can be asked, then where shall I go to seek? This is not a place where my heart cry can be heard. Where, tell me, where shall I go to speak? Now, personalize that. Don't just go, oh, this is what the church ought to be doing. Personalize this, because you are the church. Do others perceive you as a safe place to bring their hurt? You can say all you want. Oh, no, I'm a safe place. Do they perceive you that way? How can we more effectively reach the hurting, reach the bruised, reach the lost? You see, we have to think to be the church of the servant. We do. And can we really claim to be just as obnoxious as a Christian as we were prior to coming to Christ? Doesn't the gospel change? I mean, we shouldn't be bullying others. We shouldn't be people who plow over other people because we have a strong personality. That's just the way I am. I have a strong personality. Wait a minute. Shouldn't the gospel change who we are? Not all down the personality traits, you know what I'm saying. We've been given the task to introduce to others this Servant, we need to think of ways to engage a culture that is offended over everything. We have to think: How can I? Am I being offensive? Well, maybe I am. What does that look like? Should I not be? See, First Peter chapter three, verse fifteen, setting apart Christ as Lord, so he can be a, be a witness. At the end of that, verse sixteen, it says, "Do so with gentleness and." respect. I've blown it there. More than once. See, the church of the servant isn't screaming at those who disagree with us or overpowering us with our knowledge. Overpowering them with, with our knowledge. Church of the servant doesn't come to take power but comes in humility to serve not to be served. See, a church that will move this world is a church that is loving and kind. Yeah, yeah hold your convictions. I get it. We're to practice grace, though, even while promoting justice. We're respectful of all. We're gentle because there are a lot of bruised people out there, afraid to snap. Some have. We need to be gentle. Followers of the servant Jesus Christ. Do we live what we advertise? A young couple set out on a honeymoon, and as they were driving on this dark road one snowy night, their car swerved off the road and landed in a ditch. The groom awoke from the accident to find his beloved bride bleeding and unconscious. In desperation, he, he gathered her into his arms and began looking around frantically for help. Suddenly, the young man looked up and he saw a light shining from the porch on a hill, uh, on a house up on the hill. Knowing that his bride would not live long in her condition, he picked her up and he carried her up the hill to this house. As he came close to the house, he got very excited because there was a sign on the porch that said, John Hampstead, M.D., M.D., the young man rushed to the door, began knocking excitedly. The elderly man came to the door. He looked out in the darkness and he asked, Well, may I help you? Sir, the groom cried out, My bride has been hurt in an accident. She's dying. Please, doctor, save her. The old man drew back and he said, You know, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. I stopped practicing medicine many years ago. The desperate groom looked at the old man in stunned anger and he said, Mr., Your sign says you're a doctor. Either help my bride or take down that sign. Followers of the servant Jesus Christ, you wear that sign every day if we profess his name. Every day. What are we advertising? What is it that those in the world should expect to find and come in contact with you? With me. Our sign, Living Hope, indicates that a real church meets here. But what is it those in the world need? What is it that they find here? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Is that what we're advertising? Is that what we're all about? Individually and corporately? Let's pray. God, thank you for these words from Isaiah. Let it sink into our hearts. We don't just need more information this morning. We need transformation. That's going to look different for each of us for sure. God, you want us to go away from here today asking the probing question. What is it you want from me now having Seen these words in Isaiah 42. Now, having heard this message, what is it you want from me? Thank you, Lord, that we serve Jesus Christ, who is indeed our living hope. May we advertise that and deliver on that as we come into contact with people this week. I pray in Jesus' name.